Hey, we're going to be in the book of Romans tonight, the book of Romans chapter 7, and uh, we're going to look at a few verses, and uh, just real quick as we jump in, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter, and uh, he's writing to a church in Rome. He's never met the guys that go to this church in Rome. Um, Paul has it on his heart to get there, but so far in his life, he's never been to Rome. He really wants to, but he hasn't got there yet. But there's this church that started um, as a result of the ministry that was happening there in that part of the world. The gospel had spread from a tiny little sliver of land known as Israel, and it began to multiply all to the surrounding world uh, regions. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And because of people taking that to heart, we are in, when Jesus said, go to the uttermost parts of the earth, New Jersey was like in his mind, I think. Like from Israel to New Jersey is on the other side of the planet. Like Florida, where I'm from, other side of the world. But people took that message, they began to multiply it, and pretty soon the gospel reached to all these different places. And Rome was part of that spreading of the gospel. And now Paul is writing to them to to address some of the things that I think he's heard about what's going on there. But then also he gives us in the book of Romans such a powerful uh, declaration and description of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the main character of the book of Romans, unlike a lot of the other letters written by Paul, is God. Uh, From the most part, the other epistles, he's writing to Christians about God, but the main character in the book of Romans is God. And the theme of the book of Romans is salvation. His whole goal in writing the book of Romans is to talk about salvation. And he opens up the book in chapter one, and he tells us about the need for salvation. He, he tells us, and, and, and Romans 1, you can read it, um, and it, without understanding what's going on, it seems very intense. He, he's talking about all of these radical things, and, and at the end of it, his whole point in Romans 1 is to talk about how humanity deserves the wrath of God. That's Romans 1. He opens up like, hey, it's Paul, how you doing? Humanity deserves the wrath of God. All right, good night. No, he keeps going. But humanity, because of their sinfulness, because of their failures, they deserve God's judgment. There's this reality that our sin makes us really accountable before God, and on our own, we deserve the wrath of God. And so he talks about how because of that, we need salvation. That because of our actions and because of our efforts, we deserve wrath. We need somebody to save us. And he introduces to us this incredible concept known as the grace of God. That, that although we deserve the wrath of God, God has introduced to us grace. Grace is unearned, undeserved favor and blessing from God. Although we deserve wrath, God gives us grace. And from there, he talks about the need for salvation, and then he talks about the means of salvation. Basically, how is it that we're saved? How do we get out of deserving wrath and into receiving grace? Big theological word, we hear it all the time, faith, right? Faith is to believe in God. It is to trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And when we do that, we go from deserving the wrath of God, then all of a sudden receiving the grace of God. So he talks about the need of salvation, he talks about the means, and then he transitions and begins to talk about the effect of salvation. What happens when you meet Jesus? 
What happens when I've received the grace of God? I deserve wrath, and through life and through my experiences, because of my sin, I deserve wrath, but I've placed faith in Jesus, and now I receive grace, and how is that going to affect my life? And for quite a few chapters, Romans 7 included, he's talking about the effect of salvation, and then he'll kind of conclude his book by talking about really the scope of salvation, or in other words, who the salvation was intended for. We're going to focus on Romans 7, and he's talking about this idea of the effect of salvation. Now, before we jump in, Paul has been asking, starting in chapter 6, of series of questions. All these questions, you can look at it if you want. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? And then again, uh, there in uh, verse 15 of the same chapter, he says, what then shall we? He, he's sort of asking these same questions. The first question he asks, he says, what shall we say then? If, if uh, I'll read it because I can't remember it off the top of my head. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The idea is because we've received grace, should we continue in a lifestyle of sin? Should we continue sinning because there's forgiveness for sins? And I think it's a logical question to ask. I, if I know, the Bible makes it clear that God's mercies are new every morning. And so for many of us, because we're, we're kind of sneaky and conniving, we think, myself included, we think, well, if I'm going to get new mercy in the morning, why not fail tonight? Why not do whatever I want tonight because in the morning there's new mercy? Now, time out, pause. It doesn't really speak like it's not like once the clock strikes midnight, all of a sudden God's mercy refreshes. The idea is God always has mercy for what we need. But the question is, shall we continue in sin because there's grace? Shall we live a lifestyle opposed to the very things of God because there's grace? And he answers that he goes, certainly not. And another translation would say, God forbid. He's saying no way is the response. We can't continue. And the reason is because we died to sin. That's not who we are anymore. Then he asks a second question. He goes, okay, so we shouldn't live a lifestyle of sin. But then he asks, well, should we dabble in sin? Would it be okay if I sort of mess around with sin? Like it's not that big a deal. It's only one time. It's not as bad as what other people are doing. And so we ask this question, should we sort of flirt with sin? And he says, no. And his reason is, don't you know that if you mess around with sin, pretty soon you will become a slave to sin. He says, right now it's every once in a while. Right now it's the exception. Pretty soon it will become the rule. Right now, it's, yeah, it's on occasion, it's not all the time, it's not as bad as somebody else, but pretty soon, when you give yourself to sin, you find yourself a slave to sin, and he tells us that sin is a terrible master. Sin is a terrible thing to pledge our life to. And so he says, we can't continue in sin, or we can't dabble in sin, because pretty soon we'll find ourselves in bondage to it. Now, in Romans 7, this is where I think it gets really interesting. Because he asks another question. He says, shall we, shall we have a lifestyle of sin? No way. Should we mess around with sin? Absolutely not. Then he basically asks the question, if sin is bad for me, and I know that sin is wrong, why is it that I'm so enticed by sin? That's kind of the question he's asking. Because from the outset, and when we discuss it, we're like, yeah, sin, it leads to death. I don't want to die in that sense. Like, we know we're going to die, but I don't want to die eternally separated from God. I want to live. 
And I know that if I give myself to sin, I'll become a slave to sin. So why is it do I struggle so much with my sin? Why is it that if I know these things are wrong, do I find myself so enticed by sin? And Paul, as he lays out this whole idea and the effect of salvation and really the effect that salvation has on our relationship with sin, he answers this question. Why am I so enticed by sin? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about tonight. I've called this message, if you're taking notes, don't go there. Don't go there. All right, Romans uh, chapter 7. We're going to kind of jump in the middle of it. I feel like we're pretty caught up. Uh, we're going to start there in verse, let's say, 14. Does that sound good? 14? Right, why not? All right, 14. It says, for we know that the law is spiritual. He says, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He goes on to say, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. You ever been there? Like, why am I, what am I doing? I don't understand this. And he says, for what I will to do, or in other words, what I desire to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells for to will is present with me but how to perform what is good I don't find he says for the good that I will to do I do not do but the evil I will not to do that I practice now if I do what I will not to do it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells in me I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good for I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin." Let's pray real quick, and then we'll sort of break this down. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would be our teacher, that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way. And Lord, we pray as we, we discuss just this idea of being enticed by sin, God, we pray that we would find victory over whatever we struggle with. Lord, I know for many of us, there's different things that we find ourselves sort of drawn towards that we know aren't right. So God, we pray for strength and deliverance tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Don't go there. Paul is continuing on this idea, and then we find, it's kind of interesting, we see an argument that Paul has with himself. It's really back and forth in this. And his big question is, if I know sin is wrong, why is it that I find myself doing what I know I'm not supposed to do? That's a good question, isn't it? Anybody ever, you don't have to raise your hand, but anybody ever felt like that? Uh, okay, I know that this is wrong, but why is it that I find myself doing what I know I'm not supposed to be doing? Isn't there something in our nature that when we're told not to do something, we want to do it? For instance, I don't know if you guys noticed my handy dandy prop up here, 
But how many of you guys, when you see a box like this, think, I wonder why I can't open it? Right? How, how many of us see the sign that says, don't open? I've got a box up here. In case you can't see, I'll hold it up. It says, do not open. And yet for many of us, I'm going to get my Bible out from underneath it. We'll use it as the higher part of the platform. There we go. Right? We see this and we're like, well, I wonder why. Don't open. I wonder what's inside the box. Right? Or we see a sign with like, don't go in here or wet paint. And some of us are like, how wet is it? Right? I, I was reading uh, an article um, about this, this hotel that was on a lake and it was a few stories high. And uh, they kept having a problem with people fishing from the balcony. And they had a sign on their balconies. There were people fishing off their rooms, on their balconies, out into the lake. And they had a sign on there that says, please don't fish from the balcony. And they're like, why won't people stop fishing from the balcony? And people would cast their lines over, break windows down below, hit people on the balconies below them. And they're like, we got to get this to stop. Do you know what they decided to do? They got rid of the sign that says, please don't fish from the balcony. Immediately, the fishing stopped. They just took away the sign. It says, don't do this. Because there's something inside of us that says, when I can't do something, I'm kind of intrigued. Well, why is it that I can't do that? Well, well, well maybe, maybe there's something really good in there. And, and for many of us, we see this box and we're like, huh, don't open the box. I wonder why I can't open the box. There must be something really good in that box that they don't want me to see or experience or have. And for whatever reason, there's this desire to open the box. But what if I told you what was in the box? What if I said to you exactly what was in the box? Now, it's not, so don't freak out. But what if inside this box there was a poisonous snake? There's not. Don't worry about it. But what if there actually was? Like I said, do you know what's in this box? It's a poisonous snake. Don't open the box. How many of us would go, well, how poisonous is it? Like, would it kill me poisonous or would it just like kind of hurt and I, my arm might swell up? Or, or some of us would go like, well, maybe me and this snake, like we haven't met yet, but maybe we'll like hit it off and he'll really like me. I'll have like my flute and we'll, I'll charm the snake and me and the snake will be tight. So although it says don't open the box, maybe I'm the exception. Maybe when I open the box, me and the snake are going to be good. Everybody else, they can't open the box, but I'm good to open the box. There's still, even though we, we know what's inside the box, even though we know that what's inside the box will hurt us, there's still a tendency inside of us. We're drawn to what we know we shouldn't do. At first, it's just, it's curiosity, but afterwards, it's rebellion. It becomes rebellion, where we look at it and we say, okay, don't open the box, but there's something, there must be something in there, or even if I know what's in there, maybe I'm the exception. And so we think that there's, there's maybe we're good. And so Paul, he's having this struggle. He, he talks about the law and that for some reason, the law of God actually entices us to sin because there's aspects of the law, like the sign that says don't fish, that makes us think of creative ways to fish, that the law kind of does the same thing for us. And when there's rules, oftentimes we think that rules are meant to be broken. And so we look at the law of God and we look at sin and we think, well, maybe I'm the exception. And so Paul, as he's struggling with this, he draws a conclusion 
conclusion and he gives us a law or a principle in life. Look at it uh, there in, uh, let's say, verse 19. Actually, no, verse 21. He says, I will go back to verse 20. I'm sorry. Verse 20. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is the conclusion, he says. I find then a law. He says the law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. What he says, because of this struggle that he's facing, because of this battle that he sees the sign that says don't open, and he knows what's in the box is going to hurt him, and yet he still has a desire to open it, he says there has to be something wrong with me. Because up here it makes sense. In my head it makes sense that I shouldn't open the box, but for whatever reason I'm drawn to it, and, and therefore there has to be evil present within me. He makes a law. There's something inside that isn't right. There's a sin inside of us, even though the Bible makes it clear we've died to sin, we still struggle. I think we should pause for just a moment and be encouraged real quick because the great apostle Paul struggled with the very same thing that I'm sure all of us struggle with. I'm sure there's many of us that can lay in bed at night and think about all the things we've done maybe that week or that day or, or, or we've experienced it again and we think, why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep falling for that? How is it that I keep going back to this relationship or I keep going back to this thought or I keep going back to this website or I keep going back to this thing? And how is it that I keep going back there even though I know it's wrong? And we should take courage knowing that the Apostle Paul had the same struggle. That the Apostle Paul, he, he looks at his life and he says, there's, there's this thing inside of me that wants to do what's right and yet I find myself doing what's wrong and there's things that I know are wrong and yet I do them anyways. It's a struggle that we all have. So how do we actually live free? How is it that we actually find ourselves able to overcome this struggle that we face? Because I think many Christians, although Jesus has claimed us to be free, we don't live very free. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and yet for many of us, we still live bound. We still live bound by our guilt. We still live bound by some sort of sin that's grabbed a hold of us. We still live bound to really the thinking and the thought process of the culture and the world around us. And we are enticed and bound to that sort of lifestyle and that philosophy. How do we, if we've actually placed faith in Jesus and we've died to sin, like Paul has said, we've died to, how is it that we actually find freedom in Christ. I want to give a couple thoughts. The first thoughts are not the right answer, but they're going to help us get to the right answer. Does that make sense? So the first thought, the way we could try to find freedom is you could just try harder. You could just try harder, right? And for many of us in the pursuit of freedom and, and, and the pursuit of overcoming something that we struggle with, our mentality is I just got to try harder. Like we see the box, we know the box, it's do not, do not open, and our thought is like, okay, I just need to get like in really good shape, and I need to spiritually grind this thing out, and I just need to try harder to stay away from the box. Like, I know it's wrong, but I just need to work myself into not doing it. Paul, over and over and over again in this text, he brings up his will. 
right? He says, what I will to do, what I will not to do. It's this desire. It's this, this sort of thought that like, if I just work hard enough, then I'll find myself overcoming this thing. And for many people that struggle with things, they think that their freedom is going to be found in just trying really, really hard to stay away from the box. And if I can just, if I can just try harder, and if I can just work harder, and if I, can just, if I can just stop sinning, and I can just stop doing that, and I just need to tell myself, no, I'm not going to do this anymore, that I'll find the ability to overcome what I'm dealing with. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. I've known him for years. I invited him to my wedding. I got married about four and a half years ago. I invited him to my wedding. When I met him, he was an alcoholic, and he was addicted to drugs. He came by the church the other day. This four and a half years, he's still an alcoholic, and he's still addicted to drugs. Every time I see him, he walks by. He reeks of alcohol. He's half drunk. He comes up. He's like, Nate, I need prayer. Will you help me? Maybe a couple bucks. His name's Anthony. And... Four and a half years, still an alcoholic, still addicted to drugs. He knows it, and yet he still is there. What if I, after I just saw him, I think it was this, I think it was Wednesday, maybe it was Monday. I saw him, what if I looked at him, he came up to me, he reeked of alcohol, he's been living in the bushes, he came up to me and I said, do you know what you need to do? You just need to stop being an alcoholic. Just stop being an alcoholic. Just stop. Just try harder. Just stop doing it. Do you think that would help? He would go, um, Nate, that's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> that's why I'm here, because I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to be bound to this anymore. And for somebody that doesn't struggle with that, it's easy to just say, well, just stop doing it. Just stop going there. Just stop participating in that. Stop hanging around with those people. Just, just try harder, and you won't do it anymore. But there's a reality that trying harder doesn't make us find freedom. What it does is it wears us out. And then what happens is we think that God is a bad deliverer because we haven't been able to deliver ourselves. We think that God hasn't helped me because I've been trying to help myself. Remember that old saying that says God helps those that help themselves. So I've been helping myself and God isn't helping me. Therefore, God must not want me to be delivered. And then we get mad and frustrated at God. But the reality is, is us trying harder is not going to get us free from what we're bound to. And what tends to happen when we find ourselves just trying harder is we, we find ourselves hanging out in the places that we shouldn't be hanging out in. Because I think some people think, well, if I'm ever going to overcome this, I need to put myself in a situation where I can overcome it. Like, right? Like, what logic does that make? Like, if I'm going to overcome this problem, then I need to make sure that I'm around people that are doing this thing so I can learn how to say no to them. And we find ourselves, when we think that we're just going to try harder, we find ourselves just kind of camped out. So don't open, I need to work harder, and we find ourselves kind of just hanging out where we know we shouldn't be hanging out at. And trying harder, it's, it, it, we're never going to find real freedom if we think it's up to us to find that freedom. The second thing you could do, I wouldn't advise it, but you could give up and give in. Paul alludes to the idea of sort of just letting sin drive. He says, verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I don't, but the evil I will not to do, this is verse 19, that I practice. 
And if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is just who I am. I, I guess for all of my life, this will just be who I am. For my friend Anthony, he just, I'm just going to be an alcoholic forever. It's just who I am. I might as well get used to it because there's never going to be freedom for me. That's just who I am. And we could give up and we could give in. This is, I'm addicted to this. I act like that. I will always be, be this. So I might as well do it. When I, I grew up, and uh, one of the things I was really into was surfing, and I, I would compete in surfing, and I was hoping to be a professional surfer. It didn't work out, um, but that, that was kind of my goal. And there's sort of a stereotype within surfing community that surfers are potheads. And the stereotype, for a lot of cases, is true. Um, a lot of my friends were potheads. And um, there, there were often times, and I think it might have been sunburned and, and just being out at the ocean all the time, my eyes were always bloodshot, and I looked high, if I'm being honest in church. I, all the time, I would, I would show up to work. I worked as a busboy when I was about 16 years old. You, I, my, work, my shift started at noon, and I would usually surf in the morning and come in, and I looked high. And every single person I knew, whether it was at work, whether it was at school, whether it was at church, everybody assumed that I was a pothead. Now, I wasn't. I made a decision that I wasn't going to smoke weed. And the reason for that was because one time me and my friends were surfing in a contest. And we all surfed our first heat. We all got through our first heat. And then my friends went into their car and smoked weed. And I stood outside the car. And then after, afterwards, we all got in the water and surfed our next heat. They all lost, and I won my heat. And I thought, I don't think getting high is going to help me be a good surfer. I just sort of made that kind of conscious decision. And so I was never going to, it just wasn't something that appealed to me, and I decided that's not who I'm going to be. But over and over and over again, people accused me of being a pothead. I never was, but I had opportunity, and most people thought I was already doing. And can I tell you, it was not an easy fight. All the time, I had plenty of opportunity, and I had to tell myself, I do not want to be involved in this because I have a goal of being a surfer. But it would have been way easier to just give up and say, everybody already assumes this about me, so why not just give up and let in? Why not just give up and let this be who I am? Everybody thinks that's who I am anyways. Why am I working so hard just to be the, the byproduct of people that think that I'm high all the time? I could have given up and given in. And, and a lot of times when it comes to struggles that we face, this is our mentality. Whatever. It just is who I am. Just what I'm going to be. I'm always going to be bound to this. I'm always going to struggle with this. I'm never going to find real freedom. I'm never going to find real joy. I'm always going to deal with depression and anxiety as a result of being bound to this thing. And so I might as well just give up. I might as well just give in because this is just sort of my life now. Said don't open the box. I open the box. I'm stuck in it now. And this is just, this is who I am. For many people, that's how they view sin. So... If it's not trying harder, it's not giving up and giving in, is there a solution? I think there is. You could write this down. You could surrender to something greater. You could surrender to something greater. Now, Paul gets frustrated with his trying. He, he gets fed up with being stu stuck, and so he asks a question. And, and you can sense the frustration, can't you, when you read this text? It's almost like he's saying the same thing over and over again because he's just frustrated with this whole idea. 
He's like, what I'm trying to do, I'm not doing. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And this battle, it's taking place inside of me, and I can't find victory. And over and over again, I'm trying my will. I'm desiring this. I feel like it's coming from within me, and there's no victory. And then he asks a big question. Now, notice he doesn't say, what will get me out? He doesn't say, how will I get out? He says, who will deliver me from this? He he gets so fresh, oh, wretched man that I am, sinful, broken man that cannot find solutions on their own. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? The word deliver, it means to rescue or to be freed. The idea is, is actual freedom. The idea is to find yourself in a place where you feel confident in your relationship with God, where you are not bound to things that are keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer, it's a Sunday school answer. We know deliverance comes from Jesus. That deliverance, real freedom, comes from relationship with Jesus. So how... Do we find that freedom? Because I think if I probably would have asked you in the beginning of this message, like, how do you think you find real freedom? You would have said, Jesus, right? Sunday school, like you guys that working at VBS, like, Jesus, right? And it's like, that's the answer. Of course it's the answer. But we know that here, and yet we find ourselves not there. You know what I'm saying? We know that that's the answer, but how come that hasn't been the answer for me? Like, maybe I got the wrong test. Maybe that's not the right answer for me. It's a different answer. How do we get it for me? I think Paul shows us a couple of things in his answer that will help us, I think, find freedom. Look at verse 25 again. First thing he says, he says, who's going to deliver me? And he says, I thank God. The first thing that I think will help us find deliverance is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. What do I mean? Gratitude for what God hasn't done yet, or excuse me, gratitude for what God has done will give you faith for what God hasn't done. When you pause for just a moment and you recognize, okay, I'm still struggling with this. This is still a real life issue for me that I haven't found victory for yet. But let me thank God for a minute for what he has done for me. Let me thank God for a minute for the fact that I've been saved. Let me thank God for the family that I get to be a part of. Or let me thank God for the youth group that I get to be a part of. Or let me thank God for a second for the things that he's already delivered me from. Because when you can thank God for what he has done, it gives you faith for the future for what he hasn't done. And so thanksgiving, recognizing, thank you, God, simply for who you are. Thank you, God, for for where you stand and where you sit. Thank you, God, for what you've done for me already, the cross, salvation, all of these things. Thank you, God. And when you begin to thank God, it brings perspective in your life. All of a sudden, the things that seemed so overwhelming and so crippling, all all of a sudden get shrunk down to the proper side because you look at who God is and what he's done. And so Paul says, who is going to deliver me? And he goes, I thank God. Let me just pause for a minute and thank God. Let me just recognize him for what he's done and what he's given to me. So next time you struggle, next time you feel like you're pulled to something, like there's the box and you know you're not supposed to open it, and you start going towards it, why don't you pause and thank God for something? And if you can't think of something to thank God for, thank God for what he hasn't done. Thank God for all the times that he didn't answer your prayers. 
I'm sure many of us could think, I prayed for this and this is what I wanted and thank you God for not giving me what I asked for. Because I was praying for this and God, you had so much more for me. So if you can't think of something to thank God for, thank God for what he hasn't done. Because there's all sorts of things that God is doing that we don't even realize. And thanksgiving allows you to see what God is doing. The second thing he says, he says, I thank God. And then just one simple word, he says, through Jesus Christ. I thank God through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Jesus will get you through it. I think whatever we're struggling with, we need to remember that Jesus will get us through it. Now, it may take longer than we think it should. For Paul, so I don't know how old he was, I don't know how, but he's experienced life. He's experienced relationship with Jesus. He's walked with God for at least a little bit of time, and yet he's telling us about his own struggle. He's telling us about this battle that he faces within himself. Paul would talk in other letters about this thorn in his flesh that he has experienced, this, time, this thing that he's asked God over and over and over again to be delivered from, and God's response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, you have all that you need. Keep trusting me. And what we need to recognize is that Jesus will get us through it no matter how long it takes. What does the famous psalm say? It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because God's with me, right? That's the answer. And he, said, he doesn't say we're going to camp out there. He doesn't say get comfortable in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I'm walking through it. It's going to end. And the reason I know it's going to end is because I have relationship with Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus. And then the final thing he says, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. Here's the key. Our Lord. Now, Lord, that word, it means master. The idea is complete surrender and submission to Jesus. And this allows us to be delivered. For many of us, we need to surrender completely to Jesus. What I mean by that is, is all of my life, my mind, my, my desires, my ambitions, my relationships, my actions, what I dream about, what, what I aspire to be, all of these things, I'm going to surrender to Jesus and say, God, you're in control. God, you have the best plan for my life, and I'm giving it to you, and I'm going to trust you as I continue to walk with you. We're going to surrender every area of our life. What I said there, that, first, or that final point, was you could surrender to something greater. Let's pretend, again, we have to pretend, but let's pretend that on this side we have the box that says do not open. And inside of it, I told you it's a poisonous snake. Do you want to know what's actually inside of it? Do you want to know? I don't have to tell you. All right, I won't tell you. You guys want to know? What's in it is a bunch of random books that I got out of Alan's office. Kind of a letdown, right? Kind of like, huh. Yeah, I thought it was money. thought it could have been any. It seems pretty heavy, like it's pretty sturdy. Like, just... You can check afterwards. It's just a bunch of random books inside of it. Now, let's pretend, again, we have to use our imagination. Those of you that have been with VBS, you probably could do this better. But let's imagine that over here I had a different box. And inside of this box was all of those things that you imagined were inside of this box. Like money, maybe new shoes, maybe clothes. Everything you could have ever imagined was in a box over here. So you got box filled with books from Alan's office. 
or over here a box filled with everything you could ever want, everything you could ever want, purpose, ambition, life to the full, right? Jesus would call it abundant life. Jesus talked about eternal life, which is what happens to us after here and uh, here on planet Earth, but he also talked about abundant life, which is specific to here on planet Earth. Everything that you could possibly imagine inside of this box. Wouldn't it be better, rather than just trying so hard to stay away from this box or, or giving up and giving into this box, but we had something better that we could receive? That rather than just trying so hard to fight what's going on inside of you, what if you surrendered to what God was doing? And you found yourself doing what God wanted over what you wanted. The problem is, is we think that what we have or we think that what's inside of the box that the devil's tempting us with is got to be life and it's got to be great and it's got to be awesome. But then we miss out on what Jesus has, which is the promise of abundant life. It's the promise of, of relationship with him. It's the promise of purpose and satisfaction. It's the promise of direction and walking in his will. All of these things are promised to us when we surrender our life to Jesus. And yet we so get caught up and so enamored with what's in that box that we miss out on what God has for us. So if what if we just surrendered to God and we'd allow him to do with us and through us what he wants to do? Wouldn't that be a better way to live? Wouldn't, don't you think if you found yourself so just caught up with who God is and how gracious he's been and what he's doing right here on planet earth, don't you think you would find yourself wanting to participate in that rather than wanting to participate in the things that are ultimately going to let you down? If we could just allow ourselves to be thankful to God, and if we could just allow ourselves to recognize that it's through Jesus that he is with us and he's walking with us. And it may take longer than we think, but he's there with us as we go through whatever we're going through. And if we could just surrender to him as Lord and say, God, I want you first in my life over everything else, every relationship, every decision, every ambition, every action, all of these things. God, you are Lord. You are in control. And I am looking to do what you want over everything else. And all of a sudden we find ourselves not even thinking about what's in that box because we're so caught up in the goodness that God actually has for us. The freedom is found in not, not just thinking about, okay, how am I gonna get over my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin, my sin. What if we just started thinking about my God, my God, my God, my God, you're so good and you're so gracious and you're so forgiving. And rather than focusing so much on the sin, which Christians love to do, why not focus so much on our Savior who loves us? It is such a better way to live, and you'll find real freedom in Jesus when you stop focusing on my own, all this stuff going on inside of me, and I start focusing on who Jesus is. Would you guys close your eyes, bow your head? I want to pray for you, and we'll close.